0: United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two degrees. It will be very difficult, if not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We have a really good show for you today, so my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back once again, and I want to note two quick items. First and foremost, a uh, shout out to all my fellow climate activists from around the world that are attending Climate Realities leadership training this week. Your comments, suggestions, and our conversations are inspiring and bring hope that with so many individuals taking the greatest issue of our generation seriously, that we can and will make a difference. Secondly, I want to note a paper was just published on Monday warning that polar bears could potentially be extinct in as little as 80 years due to anthropogenic climate change. As both a majestic animal, the world's largest land carnivore, as well as the iconic symbol of south of two degrees, this will definitely be on the docket to discuss in a future show. For now, I just wanted to make you aware of this breaking research and assure you that it will be discussed soon. Moving on to today's show, as we discussed last week during our introduction to geoengineering or CDR technologies, this week we're going to start to explore the specific technologies and tactics you often hear of that can help us stay south of 2 degrees C. Today is all about BECS or bioengineering with carbon capture systems. So with that, let's dive right in. To start off with, imagine for a second it's 1896. The April air in Edinburgh is finally starting to show warmth of spring as you walk to the corner cafe for a cup of coffee. As you sit down and enjoy your cup, you crack open the latest copy of the London, Edinburgh, and Dublin Philosophical Magazine and Journal of Science. Yes, you're a science nerd before anyone was even called that. In it, you find an interesting article by Svante Arrhenius, titled On the Influence of Carbonic Acid in the Air Upon the Temperature of the Ground. As you read with utter fascination, Svante speculates that an increase in CO2 in the atmosphere would increase global temperature and influence climate variations. He further calculates that should the CO2 concentrations currently in the atmosphere increase by 50%, that there would be a global rise in temperature between 3 to 3.5 degrees C. As an individual of science, you know that the current 1896 atmospheric CO2 concentrations are 294.9 parts per million, which would mean it would have to increase to 442.35 parts per million. You laugh as you sip your coffee. Interesting thought, you think? But what could ever make it go that high? Before you wrap up this article and continue on your day, you notice on page 270 that Svante suggests that weathering of silicate rock could be used to reduce carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Fascinating, you think, as you polish off your coffee, thank the proprietor, and walk back out into the spring sunshine. It's now five years later. And the world has changed. However, your reading habits and morning routine haven't changed much as you bustle into the corner cafe yet again for your morning coffee. This time, you sit down with the January 1901 edition of the quarterly journal of the Royal Meteorological Society. In it, you read an article by a Swedish scientist by the name of Dr. Nils Ekholm. He has just published an article in the journal titled, On the Variations of Climate of the geological and historical past and their causes. In it, he argues that as a result of burning pit coal, atmospheric CO2 over the course of a millennium would, quote, undoubtedly cause a very obvious rise in the mean temperature of the earth, quote. Quite the claim, you think. Yet the most fascinating part of Dr. Eckholm's paper is that he speculates of a future where technologies would exist that could be used, quote, Efficaciously to regulate the future climate of the Earth and consequently prevent the arrival of a new ice age. You flip to the back cover, make sure you haven't accidentally picked up a science fiction novel, and quietly think as you finish your morning coffee. A significant climate shift would be detrimental. Maybe I should do some of my own research in this area or at least have a conversation with somebody about it. So now we're back to the present day in our strange COVID-19 world. Let's think about that scene for a hot second. In 1896, not only was it noted that CO2, and the convention at the time was to call it carbonic acid, in the atmosphere had a warming effect, but Svante Arrhenius also calculated we would be in significant trouble if atmospheric CO2 concentrations reach 442.35 parts per million. Keep in mind that as of June of 2020, that concentration was 416.39 parts per million. Interestingly enough, I had the pleasure of listening to Dr. Ratan Lau, most recent recipient of the World Food Prize, which is essentially the Nobel Prize for Agriculture, for his work in climate change and soil health, address this very question. He said this evening that 560 parts per million was, quote, a very serious tipping point, end quote. Now, does the world end at 442, as Svante suggested, or 560, as Dr. Lau noted this evening? No, but Svante's predictions weren't too far off from the most recent science, and the implications he made that were sadly ignored are very, very real. Further, noting that the weathering of silicate rocks was also a way to reduce atmospheric CO2 was nothing short of groundbreaking at the time. No, he didn't get into specifics about dunite and olivine, such as we did in episode 8, talking about enhanced weathering. But the fact that it was identified 124 years ago makes it somewhat surprising that we are just now getting to real-world experiments. Moving on to our 1901 flashback, Dr. Ekholm correctly identified that burning of fossil fuels was a major source of global warming. Sadly, it didn't take a millennia to get there, though. And the fact that he also foresaw a future where it could be mitigated? Wow. Unfortunately, here we are just over a century later, and while this tech exists, it still hasn't been rolled out at scale. Now, the Paris Accord, as we have discussed before, sets out to hold anthropogenic warming to less than 2 degrees C above pre-industrial levels and make every effort to keep it less than 1.5 degrees C by the year 2100. However, the World Meteorological Society just published a report two weeks ago that estimates one of the next five years has a 20% chance to break the 1.5 degrees C barrier. Now you may find yourself asking, okay, Brian, so we're already screwed and can't reduce emissions nearly fast enough, so how do we even come close? I'd tell you, well, it's time we dive into some negative emission technologies, or NET, to do our best to mitigate it. And to kick us off, let's look at the most popular of those technologies, specifically BECCS. BECCS, despite having never been rolled out at scale, is so popular an idea That of the 116 scenarios that achieved a likely chance of helping humanity stay below 2 degrees C of anthropogenic warming in the IPCC's AR5, 101 of them relied on VEX to some degree. So what is it? Why is it so popular? Does it actually work and if so, are there legitimate benefits or are we just trading one problem for another? Those are all great questions and what we're going to discuss today as we analyze the paper Evaluating the Use of Biomass Energy with Carbon Capture and Storage in Low Emission Scenarios, which was published the 29th of March, 2018. And as always, you can find the links to the papers discussed on this show at southof2degrees.org. Let's start with the simplified view of what BECCS actually is. It starts with a specific fuel crop that absorbs CO2 out of the air during photosynthesis, as plants do. Additionally, forest and agricultural residue or waste can be used as well. Now, that crop is then harvested and transported to a power plant where it's burned to produce power or electricity and the emissions of which are captured, and then stored deep underground in depleted oil and gas reserves. Simple enough, right? So you may be saying, sounds great, Brian. What's a holdup? For starters, let's look at how much we need. According to our paper, the energy demand needed by 2050 is 128 exajoules per year. Now, I know that's a bit meaningless to most of us. So imagine the power needed to run 676 billion 60 watt light bulbs for an entire year or every woman man and child on the planet each leaving nine 60 watt light bulbs on all year long so that's a lot right so the next question is where to grow in order to answer that we have to look at how much land we need now according to the ipcc ar5 section 4.3.7.1 to achieve this requires 25 to 46% of arable and permanent crop area in 2100 according to the study today this equates to 4% of all land area and while this requires less than 5% land changed energy crops in some regions the change would need to be as high as 10 to 15% in others. So now we're talking about four times the largest 10-year increase in cropland expansion from 1992 to 2015. Further, keep in mind this is an easy assumption in a model for every country to play nicely with each other. But to make it work across the globe would be extremely difficult in reality, despite the Paris Accord being in place. Okay, so I know you probably aren't feeling so hot on BEX anymore, but since you're still with me and I'll assume you're interested, I'll continue. The paper notes, quote, To deliver negative emissions from BEX, it is essential that the bioenergy resource used is sustainable and has limited carbon emissions from direct and indirect land use change, end quote. This means we have to be careful in selecting the land to use. According to another paper called Land Use Emissions Play a Critical Role in Land-Based Mitigation for Paris Climate Targets, published 18th of August, 2018, quote, If BEX involves replacing high-carbon content ecosystems with crops, then forest-based mitigation could be more efficient for atmospheric CO2 removal than BEX, end quote. In other words, this paper found that the majority of regions where forests would have to be replaced with fast-growing monoculture fuel crops, more carbon was stored by keeping the forest than by employing BECS. Finally, let's look at storage, or rather, where do you stick this stuff once you've captured it? To lead off that answer, I'd ask, do you want it in your backyard? Absolutely not. As we learned and detailed out on last week's show in our analysis of public perception of geoengineering, many, both in the UK and in the US, equate it to nuclear waste. While it is far from the toxic mass left over after nuclear fission, there are still implications with piping mass amounts of emissions deep underground that we may not fully understand. As such, there will be a difficult hurdle to overcome with actually getting projects off the ground. In fact, several recent CCS projects in Northern Europe were scrapped after public input. So now I imagine you're saying, well, hell, Brian, if this is so bad, why did you lead me to believe it was so good? To that, I'd say it is in a way. Think about it this way. We face a huge problem, and while there are a lot of solutions out there, there's no single one that's a magic bullet. Are there some downsides to BECCS? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can we afford to think we can address anthropogenic climate change rapidly enough by only tackling current emissions? Absolutely not. We need assistance, and that could quite possibly come partially in the form of BECS. To wrap it up, let's revisit why we need negative emission technologies and how BECS can help. While it's an all-too-popular analogy, let's roll with it as I haven't been able to frame up a better one as of yet. So, imagine a bathtub, if you will. The total volume of the tub is the amount of CO2 that we can pump into the atmosphere and still stay below 2 degrees C of warming. Now, this tub has two faucets. One represents the CO2 put into the air through natural processes, and the other which has been increasing significantly in flow rate, represents anthropogenic CO2 input. Now, the drain represents natural carbon sinks, be it ocean absorption, plant growth, weathering of silicates, etc. As we cut down trees... We clog part of that drain and it makes it harder and harder to maintain a balance. Now as the flow from the anthropogenic faucet is flowing faster and faster, we need to not only find ways to reduce the flow or limit carbon emissions, yet we also need to open a second drain before we overflow. The second drain in our analogy is potentially Bex. Now can we make that Bex drain big enough to solve the whole problem? Highly unlikely. But if we keep opening up new drains while concurrently working to limit the anthropogenic flow, I do believe we can avoid flooding out the bathroom. And that wraps up our show. I hope you enjoyed it and learned something from it. And I look forward to having you back again with us next week. Until then, stay safe. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me tell one other person about this show in the next week have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else and above all keep it south of two degrees